the double threat of ransomware and doxing, significant shifts in Twitter's two-factor auth policy, and the growing need for quantum cryptography. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. In last week's Security Report podcast, ISMG's Executive Editor Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, gave listeners an overview of some of the latest variants of ransomware that have been used in attacks this year. In a continuation of that conversation, this week Matt is focusing on the evolving sophistication of attackers themselves, along with a worrying new form of attack combining ransomware with the threat of doxing sensitive corporate information. Here's Matt with more. Ransomware-wielding attackers continue to practice some old as well as new tactics in their quest to get victims to pay them a ransom. But as with all types of crime, some attackers are simply more sophisticated than others. In one recent case, for example, attackers hit Allied Universal, a California-based security services firm with Maze ransomware, also known as ChaCha ransomware, as Bleeping Computer has reported. The ransomware gang demanded 300 bitcoins, worth about $2.1 million, in exchange for a decryption tool and set a deadline. When that passed without payment, the attackers leaked 700 megabytes of stolen data. Allied Universal told me that it's investigating what it says is potential unauthorized access to its systems and also working with outside cybersecurity experts as well as law enforcement. So the bad news here is that attackers have threatened to release five gigabytes of the data they stole from Allied, including sending it to WikiLeaks. The good news, however, is that this type of shakedown is very rare. Multiple security experts have told me that this is the first case they've ever seen involving attackers stealing and threatening to dox corporate data, while at the same time unleashing crypto-locking malware against the same victim. Why hasn't this happened before? Experts cite multiple reasons, one of which is that stealing data tends to take a more sophisticated type of attacker who will try to sell the stolen data on cybercrime marketplaces to other criminals or nation-state actors. Another reason it's rare is that attempting to sell stolen data back to the organization you stole it from simply doesn't make much money. Another reason is that the group stealing the data oftentimes isn't the same group that unleashes ransomware. That's because more sophisticated attackers tend to gain remote access to the site and steal valuable data, such as customer details, payment card information, or intellectual property. Then they'll often sell access to the hacked site to a less advanced attack group, which will hit the target with ransomware. Of course, some ransomware attackers are more sophisticated than others. For example, some attackers who use Sodonokibi, a ransomware as a service offering, have become expert at hitting IT and managed service providers. One such attack in August, for example, led to 22 Texas municipalities having their IT systems get infected by ransomware. With cybercrime, time is money. And hitting IT service providers can give attackers massive bang for their buck. Hacking into just one IT service provider may give them the ability to use the IT firm's own endpoint management tools to install their ransomware onto hundreds or thousands of PCs and servers managed by that one provider. A recent example of this type of attack involved virtual care provider Inc., which provides cloud hosting and other services to more than 110 healthcare organizations and acute care facilities across 45 states. 
some of which then managed multiple nursing homes and assisted living facilities, meaning 80,000 PCs and servers in total. As security reporter Brian Krebs first reported last week, attackers have demanded a $14 million ransom, which Milwaukee-based Virtual Care says it cannot afford to pay. It also doesn't have an estimate for when it might be able to restore systems. In the interim, some of its clients cannot process Medicaid billing for December payments or patient medication orders. Unfortunately for businesses, criminals have continued to double down on these types of attacks against IT service providers. Cyber insurance provider Beasley says that attackers targeting of IT vendors has helped drive a 37% increase in reported ransomware incidents in the third quarter of this year, compared to the preceding three months. With more such attacks continuing to come to light, this trend looks set to continue. The takeaway for all organizations that rely on IT service providers is clear. Ask them what they're doing to protect you from ransomware. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Two-factor authentication has had a rather sizable Achilles heel in recent years. The need to supply a phone number. Phone numbers are a fundamental requirement for SIM swapping and hijacking attacks. And these attacks have exploded over the last couple of years, with a rather notable recent victim being a certain Mr. Jack Dorsey, Twitter's co-founder and CEO. Whether this was the straw that broke the camel's back, we'll never know. But Twitter has decided to drop the requirement for phone numbers in two-factor auth going forward. Here's ISMG's managing editor, security and technology, Jeremy Kirk, with a story. Twitter has finally made a change long sought by users. They no longer have to supply a phone number in order to use two-step verification for authentication. The move will help better protect accounts that may be targeted by so-called SIM swapping or hijacking attacks. Those attacks are aimed at intercepting a two-factor code after seizing control of someone's phone number. Another problem is that if a Twitter user opted to use a third-party app to generate the code instead, Twitter still required a phone number. The move also allows users to maintain better security but without divulging more information to Twitter. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey was recently a victim of a SIM hijack. On August 31st, racist and profane tweets came from his account, including a retweet of a post by a Holocaust denier and a bogus bomb threat at the company's San Francisco headquarters. Twitter said the phone number associated with Dorsey's account was compromised due to a security oversight by a mobile provider. It said the attack did not extend to its internal systems. Supplying a phone number was particularly onerous to some users who wanted more privacy on the social network. Then in early October, Twitter admitted to using phone numbers provided for security purposes for targeted advertising. Twitter said that usage was inadvertent and it apologized. Phone numbers were used as part of Twitter's tailored audiences advertising program. Companies can upload customer lists to Twitter, which are hashed. Twitter compares the hash with hashes it has of its user base in order to find matches for precise ad placements. Neither side sees plain text data of what the other has. The Electronic Frontier Foundation also points out that phone numbers supplied to Twitter are fair game for law enforcement making legal requests. The move away from two-factor codes sent over SMS has long been recommended by security experts, and there are plenty of other options now to get the code in a safer way on Twitter. 
Twitter began supporting third-party authentication apps in December 2017. It now supports ones including Google Authenticator, Authy, Duo Mobile, and 1Password. It's also possible to use hardware keys, such as a YubiKey. The apps generate the code locally, and it doesn't have to be sent over the air. Hopefully more online services will make moves to encourage their most safety-conscious users to move away from 2FA over SMS. But even just getting people to turn on 2FA remains a challenge. Last year, a Google engineer said more than 90% of Gmail users don't have 2FA turned on. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, ISMG held its Mumbai Summit last week, and this was a resounding success, attracting nearly 500 attendees internationally to discuss cybersecurity topics and to network with their peers. One topic of discussion was recent developments in quantum computing and its implications for cybersecurity notably cracking encryption at incredible speeds. ISMG's Managing Director of Asia-Pacific, Varun Haran, got the opportunity to sit down with Sunil Gupta, co-founder and chief executive officer of QNU Labs, a company that is working in the emerging field of quantum-safe cryptography. Varun asked Sunil what his greatest security concerns are relating to the shift to quantum computing. Here's his response. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, see, quantum computing is is a new uh, new thing, right? And uh, this is a whole new paradigm of computing. So think about it uh, that uh, today's all classical computers today they, they they think sequentially or parallelly, right? Every data is processed. We're talking about something which is going to do uh, absolute new paradigm. And it's going to look at data in a very different way, which means that they will have exponential large computing power. And the moment that power comes to the quantum computers, you can imagine that most of the applications that run today, most of the uh, uh, research that is being done today is going to drastically change. Uh, just to give you an example, the Google just launched their uh, announced uh, Super Messi, right? Quantum computer Super Messi. What it means is that for a particular problem, they can actually, quantum computer, which is just a 52 qubits, can actually solve the problem in 200 seconds while a clinic classical computer would take about 10,000 years, right? So that is the type of impact that we are, we are talking about, right? And uh, the lowest uh, hanging fruit for the quantum computers, once they become sufficiently strong, is to break cryptography. And I think cryptography, as they say, is the last bastion, right, of security, because uh, you know everything else has been broken. I think even some uh, cryptography algorithms, the weaker ones, have been broken. But there are others that I think a lot of PKI infrastructure depends on to protect private keys and things like that. Now, if quantum computing comes into the picture, and then that entire infrastructure goes for a toss, right? Yeah. So, so what is happening is, of course, when quantum computers come, sufficiently strong quantum computers is going to break every possible data that we have today, right? Some other uh, you know, articles say that 90% of the today's communication would stand exposed, right? So that is the risk that we have. But if you ask me, the, you know, even if the quantum computers are five, 10 years away, the worry is still today, right? Because what is happening is that most of the critical data is valid for next 10 to 15 years. What it means is that it is enough incentivization for the um, uh, hackers to really store and keep the data, right? Harvest and, and store the data, and then can always break it a little later, right? And that's what means is that the enterprises need to think about a new paradigm of data security, not waiting for quantum computers, but they have to start doing it today. 
That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time. Thank you.